closing phrase of uh, the closing phrase of James chapter one. James says that you and I are to keep ourselves unstained by the world, unspotted by the world. And I hope you've seen in the last couple messages that the world is not a place. It's a perspective. It's not out there somewhere. It's in you. John says in 1 John 2.16, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's it. What's the lust of your flesh? Pleasures. It's what you want. What's the lust of your eyes? What do your eyes see that you want? Possessions. And what is the pride of life? Prestige. All that is in the world is make me happy, make me rich, and make me famous. That's it. Now, it may be stimulated by outside things, but it rises up in you. So the issue is not where you are, it's who you are. The issue is not so much what you do, it's why you do it. And we saw in John chapter 17 in Jesus' prayer that we are to relate to the world like Jesus did. Jesus hung out with people who knew they were lost. Pimps and prostitutes. He didn't have the time of day for people who thought they were okay spiritually. The religious Pharisees. We are to relate to the world the way Jesus related to the world. And we are to be separate from the world the way Jesus was. Not by isolation. Not by legalism, but Jesus says, by the word of truth. We're to have the right message and the right character. We're to have the right message, which is what? The cross of Jesus Christ. And we're to have the right character, which comes from carrying his cross every day. So the cross is the issue. It's my message. And it's what causes me to die to myself every day. So we are to be in the world, but distinct from the world. The world says, be selfish, be greedy, and be proud. Christ's character is that we should be selfless, we should be giving, and we should be humble. And to accomplish Jesus' prayer for you, Some of us need a new game plan. We need to stop focusing on the external. We need to stop focusing on the appearance. That is the core of religion. Externally, Jesus didn't appear very religious. He was perfect. But he didn't appear religious enough to the Pharisees. Jesus appeared to be a glutton. Jesus appeared to be a drunkard. But those who got close enough saw his character 
and they heard his message. Now, what do we say as Christians? I want to be like Jesus. I want other people to see Jesus in me. Now, what does that mean? Well, for a lot of us, we say, well, I hope my neighbor noticed that I went to church this morning. I hope he noticed that I had a tie on. I hope he noticed that I was carrying my Bible. I hope he saw my bumper sticker. Maybe he noticed my Christian T-shirt. Maybe he noticed the things that I don't do. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't dance. I don't mow my yard on Sunday. I don't do. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Maybe he noticed those things. When we think about being like Jesus, we tend to turn to legalism and we make our list and we say, I hope he can see Jesus in me. You know what he's seeing in you? If you have a list of do's and don'ts, he's seeing pharisaicalism. And I will repeat it over and over again. We all are recovering Pharisees. We need to tear up our list. Stop focusing on the externals. Stop focusing on the appearances. And focus on the difference Jesus wants to make in you. The heart the heart. I said it last time, Jesus said we're to be set apart by the word. If you read Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find in Colossians 3 he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and he talks about some results. And in Ephesians 5 he says, be filled with the spirit, and he talks about some results, and they are the same results which tells me to be filled with the Spirit, you need to be filled with the Word, and it is the Word that sets you apart and makes you distinct in this world. Now, if you look at the results of both of those in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, it's rather interesting. Because he says, let the Word richly dwell within you, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's what will happen in your life. You will be praising God, you will be giving thanks for all things, And you will be submissive to one another in relationships. And then he talks about husbands and wives and the love that needs to be there. Children and parents, the love that needs to be there and the obedience that needs to be there. Then he talks about masters and slaves in a a job relationship and the reality that, that ought to be there. So the results are what? The results are relationships. I hear Christians all the time say, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And we're right. We have a relationship with Christ. Then we come to relating to the world, and what do we say? I got my list of do's and don'ts. And what am I saying to my neighbor? It's not a relationship. It's a religion. You see, the way that we show the reality of being distinct and set apart from the world by the Word of God is through relationships. My relationship with God, I'm praising and giving thanks. My relationship with others, I'm showing love and submission to them. Now think about your relationships. And we're going to talk about it for the next several weeks. I'm going to talk about the difference that only Jesus can make in your heart and your relationships. I want to talk about the character qualities that only God can produce in you. Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. 
He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's the evidence that the Spirit of God is in you? A lot of preachers talk about the gifts of the Spirit and fail to realize that the Bible says the evidence of the Spirit of God in you is not so much the gifts of the Spirit, it's the graces of the Spirit. It's not so much that you have signs and wonders and miracles and power. It's that God, by His Spirit, is producing character fruit in your life. Next Sunday is Father's Day. I'm going to give you fathers a bonus. This is going to be a whole series for fathers. And I don't want to sound like I'm speaking down to you. And I don't want to sound like I've got it all together because, uh, you know, the problem with preaching every Sunday is sometimes you come to the pulpit and your life is not all together. And my wife is in Ohio this week, but I did something to hurt her very much. And so as I'm talking about love today, it's convicting me. But I would specifically say to you who are husbands and fathers here today, imagine what your home would be like if you started demonstrating these character attributes in your life. Imagine what your spouse would be like. Imagine what your kids would be like. Imagine what your neighbors would be like. Imagine what your employees would be like or your fellow employees would be like if you started demonstrating these things in your life. If some of us started bearing this kind of fruit, we'd be strangers in our own house. recently came across a story that a man named Tom Anderson wrote. He said, I made a vow to myself on the drive down to the vacation beach cottage. For two weeks, I would try to do, be a loving husband and father, totally loving, no ifs, and, or buts. The idea had come to me as I listened to a commentator on my car tape player. He was quoting a biblical passage about husbands being thoughtful of their wives. Then he went on to say, love is an act of the will a person can choose to love. To myself, I had to admit that I had been a selfish husband, that our love had been dulled by my own insensitivity. In petty ways, really, chiding Evelyn for her tardiness, insisting on the TV channel I wanted to watch, throwing out day-old newspapers before Evelyn had a chance to read them. Well, for two weeks, that would change. And it did. Right from the moment I kissed Evelyn at the door and said, that new yellow sweater looks great on you, she said, oh, Tom, you noticed. Surprised and pleased and maybe a little shocked. After the long drive, I wanted to sit and read. Evelyn suggested a walk on the beach. I started to refuse, but then I thought, Evelyn's been alone here with the kids all week, and now she wants to be alone with me. We walked on the beach while the kids flew their kites. So it went, two weeks of not calling the Wall Street investment firm where I am the director, 
a visit to the Shell Museum, though I usually hate museums, holding my tongue while Evelyn's getting ready made us late for a dinner date, relaxed and happy, that's how the whole vacation passed. I made a new vow to keep on remembering to choose love. There was one thing that went wrong with my experiment, however. On the last night at our cottage preparing for bed, Evelyn stared at me with the saddest expression. What's the matter, I asked. Tom, she said in a voice filled with distress, do you know something I don't? What do you mean? Well, that checkup I had several weeks ago, our doctor, did he tell you something about me? Tom, you've been so good to me. Am I dying? It took a moment for it all to sink in, then I burst out laughing. No, honey, I said, wrapping my arms around her. You're not dying. I'm just starting to live. You know, it's sad when we show love to our spouse and they conclude that they must be dying. But I suspect some of us would get a similar response. Now, why does the Word of God compare the character that the Holy Spirit creates in us to fruit? Let me give you three reasons. The first is that fruit is visible. Fruit can be seen, it can be touched, it can be smelled, it can be tasted. It's not abstract, it's concrete. Some of us try to justify these things by saying, I've got these qualities, they're just deep down inside and they're not very noticeable. They're kind of hidden. We see that's not possible. Because if you have love, joy, peace, patience, people can see that. Fruit is visible. Secondly, fruit is verifiable. And what I mean by that is it's unique and distinct. If you go down to Schnooks, you don't need signs in the fruit section. You can tell that's a banana, that's an orange, that's a kiwi. You may grab a plantain by mistake, but if you eat it, you'll know it's not a banana. Fruit is distinct. It's unique. The fruit reflects the nature of the tree. And Jesus said in Luke 6.44, each tree is known by its own fruit. You don't get figs from a thorn tree. You don't get grapes from a briar bush. And you will not get the fruit of the Spirit of God if He is absent in your life. Heard about a little boy who had a fruit tree outside his bedroom window, and he got grounded all the time. So he'd go up to his room. He would go in the room. He would lock the door, lift the window up, jump out on the tree, climb down, play for a while, come back up the tree, go through the window, and sort of bypass the grounding. One day he overheard his dad say to his mom, that fruit tree by the house hasn't borne fruit in years. I'm going to cut it down. And so he enlisted the help of his brother, They went to the store and bought a couple bushels of apples. They climbed up in the tree with string and tied apples all over the tree. That evening when his father came home, he burst into the kitchen and said, Honey, you're not going to believe it. It's a miracle. That old fruit tree is growing fruit. And then when they went outside with tongue in cheek, he said, And what's more amazing is it's a pear tree. 
be honest with me. Have you ever tied the fruit of the Spirit into your life? So I, think, I think I'll try to tie some love on, make it look like it belongs here. See, fruit is verifiable. It clearly reflect, reflects the nature of the tree. And then thirdly, fruit is valuable. Fruit exists for only one reason, and that is to be eaten. It doesn't exist for the sake of the tree. It exists for the sake of the people who want to eat it. And let me say this clearly. It's the same with the fruit of the Spirit. It exists in your life for the sake of the people you interact with. Your family, your friends, your neighbors, the lost world around you. Now notice a couple things about the fruit of the Spirit. Number one, this fruit is not produced by us. It's produced by the Spirit of God in us. It is the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot manufacture these fruit. They are developed in us by the Spirit of God. And then secondly, the word fruit is singular. It's singular. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It is fruit of the Spirit. What's that tell us? The list is not multiple choice. Some of us come in here and say, you know, I'm not very big on patience, and I'm not really big on self-control, but I'd love to have some joy. I'd love to have some peace. We see it doesn't work that way. It's a package deal. It's fruit singular. We don't all have the gifts of the Spirit, but we all should be manifesting the graces of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not like an apple tree. You might walk up and go, I think I want that one and that one. It's not that way. It's more like a cluster of grapes. You grab the cluster and they all come together. Or maybe the better analogy would be, it's like an orange. You've got one fruit, but you open it up, and what happens? You've got all those different sections, which are the character qualities of the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit bears one fruit with multiple character qualities. And I might add, this fruit is never out of season. It's always ripe, and it's always tasty. Now, the first character quality in the fruit of the Spirit is love. I don't think that's a coincidence. Andrew Murray says love is the key and all the others are ways in which love is manifested. That's hard to argue with. Ryan read 1 Corinthians 13. There it says, love is kind. Kindness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. There it says, love is patient. Patience is one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so, I think we could say that all the other fruit are really facets of love. And then later in 1 Corinthians 13, if you read on, he says the greatest of these is love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14 says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love. See, love is obviously listed first because it's the most important. And all the other qualities flow from love. So it's important to understand, for us to understand what love is. What is love? 
lot of us get our definition of love from Hollywood. If you listen to Hollywood, love is either sentimental, cynical, or sexual. It, 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 it's sentimental. Back when I was a kid, we had the movie, uh, well, it's so long ago, I can't remember the name of it. Was it Love Song or Love Something? Anyway, the, the classic line in the movie was, love is never having to say you're sorry. Love story. See, I got it right. That rarely happens. I don't even know what that means. Love is never having to say you're sorry. I say sorry all the time, and I'm still behind. Love is that sentimental. Love is cynical. Tina Turner singing, what's love got to do with it? Or love is sexual. I feel like making love. So we have this distorted definition coming from Hollywood, coming really from the world, trying to tell us what love is. We need to understand what it is. So let me start by exposing some false presumptions about love. First of all, most people believe that love comes naturally. That's incorrect. In his book, Bold Love, Dan Allender tells a story of an enlightening conversation he had sitting next to a man on an airplane. He writes, When I told him I was on my way to address several hundred people on the topic of love and forgiveness, he peered over his bifocals and replied, How nice. Love, huh? Well, I guess we all need to be reminded of the importance of love. Our discussion soon centered around what he viewed as the central driving purpose in his life. He told me that what pleased him most about his grown children was their tenacity in pursuing education, careers, and success. They had learned well from their father, and he was indeed proud. What is that? All that is in the world. He later told me that his three children had experienced five divorces and that he had grandchildren who he had not seen for five years due to the unhappy marital endings. And his own two divorces seemed to trouble him little. I eventually asked him how important it was to teach his children to love and remain tenaciously committed to people. His response was highly illuminating. He said, I never taught my children about love. I suppose I thought they would naturally pick up what needed to be learned about those things. Love, he told me, was noble and natural, therefore as basic to life as breathing. And then he added, I taught my children to love by example, not by word. I hope that was enough. And Allender concludes, it was difficult to tell him that was not enough. It wasn't enough because love is not natural to sinful human beings. And this man should have seen that because of the carnage in his own life. Seven divorces among four people in two generations gives evidence that it's not a natural thing. You see, love doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally by the Spirit of God in you. Second misconception. Most people believe that love is uncontrollable. That's why we say... I fell in love, or I fell out of love. The implication is I had no control over it. Whoops, I'm in love. Whoops, I'm out of love. 
Most people think it's uncontrollable. That's why we hear people saying, I must be in love, my head is spinning. I must be in love, my knees are weak. I must be in love, I'm in a whirlwind. We, we view love as kind of like getting the flu. I got these symptoms, these feelings. I must be in love. And that's why we say people in love do the craziest things. Like that's good. Like they have no control over what they're doing. You see, love is not uncontrollable. The first character quality in the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the last character quality? Self-control. You see, love that is the fruit of, of God in your life doesn't get you out of control. It gets you in control. Third misconception. Most people believe, incorrectly again, that love is only a feeling. Someone has said, love is a feeling you feel when you feel that what you feel is a feeling you've never felt before. I think this is the most common misconception about love. Love is a quiver in your liver. It's an ocean of emotion. And of course the problem is that feelings come and go. People who base love on feelings go from exciting to existing to exhausting to expired. Someone has wisely said, puppy love doesn't last through the dog days of life. Love is not a feeling of the emotions. It's a commitment of the will. You see, if love was just an emotion, then God couldn't command that. He can't command your emotions. But he commands that you love. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus said, love your enemies. Now, when are you going to feel like loving your enemies? Never. Love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment of the will. So let's talk about what, what love is. Let me give you my definition. And I stole this from several different people. Love is desiring the very best for another person, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. Love is desiring the very best for another person. Now remember, I didn't say what that person wants. Because what that person wants may be worldly. I want to be happy, I want to be rich, I want to be famous. Love is desiring the very best, which is God's will for that person, no matter what it costs me, and expecting nothing in return. And if you happen to write that down, I'll tell you now that that's a lame definition. Because it's impossible to define love. In Ephesians 3, 19, Paul prays that we might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So we can't really put love in a nice little package and say, I've got the definition, I've got it figured out. Because you don't really experience love or you don't know love mentally. The only way you can know love 
is experientially as you receive God's love and as you allow it to flow out to others in your life. And that's why if you look in Scripture, you'll find that love is never defined because you can't define it. Instead, it's demonstrated. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3.16, we're told, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Love is not defined in Scripture, it's demonstrated. And what is the demonstration of love? Well, listen to Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. How's that verse go? I've been crucified with Christ. That's it. And the last phrase says, who loved me and gave himself for me. What's the demonstration of love? It's the cross. Ephesians 2, 5, 2 says, and walk in love just as Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, it used to bother me that, that in those two verses, it talks about the fact that God loved us past tense. And I used to think, well, why doesn't it say God loves me? That's a little more sentimental. I want him to love me today, not have loved me some time ago. But you see, the demonstration of love is what? That he gave himself for me. The demonstration of love is the cross. And so what he's saying is, he loved you so much that he gave his life for you, and if he'll do that for you, he still loves you today. So we look back at the cross and we see that as the full demonstration of the love of Christ. And I know if he did that, he'll do anything for me. That's the expression, that's the demonstration of love. What was the cross? It was God desiring the very best for you, no matter what it cost him, and expecting nothing in return. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he felt all gushy inside. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He desired the very best for you, and he paid the ultimate price, expecting nothing in return. And that's what he gets from a lot of people. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the fact that God's love is personal. John 3.16 excites me, but God so loved the world. The world's pretty big. Ephesians 5.2 excites me where it says God loved us. It's a little better. But Galatians 2.20 is what really excites me because there it says who loved me. He loved me enough to give his life on the cross. That's personal. When Jesus went to the cross, he was thinking about you. He had you on his mind when he sacrificed himself. He loved me enough. That's why you'll never find a better favorite song than Jesus loves me. This I know. 
And the cool thing about Scripture is it tells us in 1 John 4, 8 that not only does God demonstrate love, but God is love. God is love. It's not an occasional mood he gets in. It's not something he generates and manufactures and gives out. God is love. So every time you come to God, he is desiring the very best for you, no matter what it costs him, and expecting nothing in return. Isn't that nice? When I go to God in prayer, I don't have to think, Hope he's in a good mood today. Because I got a tough prayer. My kids do that. They like to wait till after I ate. And say, I think he's a little more friendly right now. We'll go to him. God's not moody. And God is love. And every time you come to him, he is consistently the same. You say, well, how much does he love me? We know there's two exciting phrases in Jesus' prayer in John 17. We looked at it last week. But if you continue on in the chapter, there's two verses I want want to show you. The first is John 17, 23. Jesus is praying. He says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. And then notice this. And love them even as you have loved me. Jesus said, I want you to, I'm going to send you out into the world the way the Father sent me. And now he says to the Father, you have loved them the same way you have loved me. I've told you the story before, but when I was in Bible college, I had a girlfriend. and That was in the day before email, so we got real letters and uh, I hadn't had mail for a while, and she knew that, so she put a piece of mail in my box, and I went and got it out and opened it up, and it just said this. It said, God loves Danny Green just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. And I remember reading that the first time and thinking, that's heresy. That can't be. He can't love me as much as his only son. And in searching to prove her wrong, I came to this verse. And what does Jesus say? God loves you just as much as he loves me. We say, how much did he love me? And we stretch out our hands and say, this much, because it is the cross. But we can also say, God loves me just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That's amazing. But as amazing as that is, what's almost more amazing is verse 26 of chapter 17. Because he says, And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. God not only loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ, he has taken that same love and he has put it inside of you. So listen, you have the capacity to love others the way God loves you. Wow. That's eye-opening. That's why Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out within us 
by his Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus is saying, you're to go into the world but not be of the world, and the thing that distinguishes you from the world is your character, and the character quality that ought to be foremost in your life is love. That's why Jesus could say in John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All men are going to know. The world's going to know you're in the world. What are they looking for? Not your do and don't list. They're looking for your love. If they see your love, they'll know that you have Jesus in you. Now, we confuse that all the time. Because I think if you really answered this question honestly, you would probably say, all men know because I've got my doctrine right. You know, I've studied and I've figured this out and I've got, I've got this knowledge of the Word. And that's how people should know that I'm a disciple of Jesus. Or people ought to know because I carry a big black Bible. People ought to know because I can define those big words like justification and sanctification and premillennialism and dispensationalism. I can answer those. People know because I don't drink or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. People know because I have this list of things that I do. And that, What does Jesus say? Jesus says, the evidence that you're my disciple is love. We're big on believe. Are we big on love? Say, I believe the right things. I'm just kind of weak in this area of love. 1 John 4, 8 says, the one who does not love does not know God. I don't know about you, but that's a convicting verse. It's not optional. If you know him, you will love. In fact, look at 1 John chapter 3. This is the last place I'll let you look. We'll close out here. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brethren, brethren, if the world hates you. We're to be in the world. We're to be going against the flow of the world. And what happens many times is the world is going to hate us. So John says, don't be surprised about that. And then he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. One of the evidences to me that I'm a believer, that I know Jesus and his spirit lives in me, is that I love the people that I used to hate. When I was in the world, couldn't stand Christians, didn't want to be around Christians, don't come near me if you're a Christian. You become a Christian 
And what's one of the evidences? Start loving these weird people. That's amazing. Because most of you are not that lovable. And I'm not that loving. So now I have suddenly this God-given capacity to say, I care. I love. Where'd that come from? It's God in me. It's kind of like your family. You know, you don't pick your brothers and sisters. They just come along. But you love them because they're part of your family. It's the same in the body of Christ. Now, how do you love somebody? Well, Jesus put it real succinctly in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's pretty easy. Just take the way you love yourself and translate it into loving other people. Most of your thoughts center around, what do I need right now? What do I want right now? Jesus is just saying, when you start doing the things that you normally do for yourself every day, just start doing those same things for your neighbor. Here in 1 John 3, he puts it this way in verse 16. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We usually stop there. But he continues And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Lay down your life. I desire the very best for you, no matter what it costs me, even if it means my life, and expecting nothing in return. You say, well, if I ever get a heroic moment, I'll lay down my life. That's not what he means. Because he tells us what he means in verse 17. He says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? What's it mean to lay down your life? Well, it means to lay down what your life consists of. If you died today, you'd have no more time, no more money, no more possessions, no more plans, no more dreams. You'd be done. He's saying you've got the world's goods, you've got those things that are temporary, you need to be giving those to someone in need who is an eternal being. It's real simple. Love lays down his or her life. And we're to do that a handful at a time every day. Little girl was invited for dinner at the home of her first grade friend, the Vegetable was buttered broccoli. And the mother asked if she liked it. She said, oh, yes. I love it. When they passed the bowl of broccoli around, she didn't take any. So the hostess said, well, I thought you said you love broccoli. She said, oh, I do love it, but not enough to eat it. I do love my brother. I love my neighbor, but not enough to lay down my life. Well, if you're saying that, the kind of love you're talking about is Hollywood's love. Because the only kind of love that the Spirit of God produces in you is going to be the same love that God has. And that's a love 
that lays down its life. And then he says in verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Love is not something you can just talk about. It's something you have to live out. That doesn't mean you never tell somebody you love them. You should be telling people you love them every day. Kind of like the old grizzled guy who said, I told my wife 30 years ago when we got married that I love her. If I ever changed my mind, I'll let her know. You're to be speaking love, and you're to be demonstrating love in your life because love that is only said and not shown is not love. Love is the first quality in the fruit of the Spirit. Everything else flows from that. And that's why the Bible tells us love is essential. When Ryan read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where Paul says, if I speak with all languages and know all mysteries and have all gifts and have all faith and don't have love, I am nothing. Why? Because love is essential. So let me ask you a question in closing. How in the world are you different? Is it isolation? Like the aesthetic, you climb a 60-foot pole and get away from the world? Is it by legalism? I have a list of do's and don'ts that I hope somebody sees and recognizes how religious I am. Or is it the way Jesus told you to be different? By love. Are you desiring the very best for others no matter what it costs you and expecting nothing in return? That's love. How do I get that kind of love? It's produced by the Spirit of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It happens when I allow the Spirit of God to have total control of my life. When I stop quenching the Spirit and I stop grieving the Spirit and I say, God, take over and live through me. The key to fruit is the root. And then when you have the power, you can choose love. Like Colossians 3.14 says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We're going to close by praising the Lord in our relationship with Him. And then as we go from here today, I trust that you will be focused on relationships around you and allowing the Spirit of God to change your heart and make you an individual marked by love. Let's stand as we close together.